Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Behind the Knife and our COVID-19 coverage. Um, with us today, we have Dr. Peter Angelos. He is the Linda Kohler Anderson Professor of Surgery at the University of Chicago. He is Chief of Endocrine Surgery, and he's also the Associate Director of the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. And that's what we're going to base our discussion around today is on the ethics uh, in this time of the pandemic. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Angelos. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So let's jump right into what we wanted to talk about. Um, there's been a lot of discussion with, uh, you know, ethical and moral considerations during this time of the pandemic and, you know, with people sharing ventilators and with physicians not having PPE. So basically the first question to start kick off this discussion, um, how does the ethical basis of medical decision-making in times of the scarcity of resources, as we have now, differ from times of the usual medical care when we have all the supplies we need? Yes, um, it's a great question. Um, I think it's probably the single most um, fundamental ethical change is that uh, the way we uh, in the U.S. and probably most of Western medicine has focused on making decisions for patients on the basis of what's best for the patient. And so it's really this patient-centered medical ethics. Unfortunately, when you're in a period of uh, extraordinary circumstances such as we are now, uh, we've got to shift that foundation. And instead of using a patient-centered ethics, we've really got to focus on public health ethics. And this is really different because, um, you know, we are used to thinking about our patients and what's in our patients' individual best interests and not so much what's in our patients' interests relative to the needs of the community or, you know, resources in the hospital, that sort of thing. And so, so this shift towards uh, thinking about things in, along the lines of triage is not something that we are used to in uh, most Western uh, medical settings. Um, the, the concept of triage and figuring out what's best for the group is certainly something that in uh, wartime is often necessary in areas where there are, are extraordinary um, scarcity of resources, it can be um, certainly necessary. Um, but this is an unusual circumstance for most physicians uh, in the Western world. And along the same lines, what we think about, you know, we have we took the Hippocratic Oath, we have some responsibility in during this pandemic. And like you said, a lot of new concepts of like triaging and like, um, not having like an unlimited supply of whatever you ask for in the operating room. How does one portray and think about what our moral responsibility is in this pandemic? But then also, 
what is our professional responsibility? And is it worth putting ourselves in harm's way and volunteering in, um, you know, in units where we're not going to get enough supplies to even protect ourselves and we might have to risk ourselves and be on the front lines? Um, sure. I think, you know, those are, those are um, very good and difficult questions. Um, I think that in recent memory, we, um, and, I, and by we, I say, you know, most physicians today feel a sense of a uh, moral responsibility or a professional duty to actually care for patients, even when it involves some degree of personal risk. And so I think that um, if you go back to um, the initial um, experience when AIDS was becoming a very uh, common diagnosis, there was a huge concern on the part of many surgeons about whether operating on patients who were HIV positive was putting uh, the surgeon and the OR team at significant risk of contracting the disease. And at that time when there weren't good treatments, uh, that was a major concern. And I think that um, certainly there were situations where surgeons refused to operate, but most uh, organized um, medical groups um, felt that there was a professional responsibility or duty to treat those patients. And whether you base that duty um, on the Hippocratic Oath, or whether you base it on, you know, the AMA Code of Ethics, you know, you could sort of choose where you derive it from. Um, but I think most people would agree that by virtue of the position that we hold in society, we have a responsibility to take care of patients, even when that does involve some degree of risk. Now, what's I think difficult is that um, it's all about how big the risk is. So if, for example, um, one has the opportunity to utilize all the appropriate PPE and take care of patients or to opt out of doing that, I would say, well, I think there's a professional duty to take care of patients. And certainly the physician, other healthcare workers, nurses, respiratory technicians, et cetera, they are going to put themselves in a position where they may have uh, more risk than the average citizen who's sheltering at home. Um, but I do think that there are uh, duties associated with the jobs that we have. And, um, and so I would say there's a responsibility. Now, in, there are some situations where if someone goes above and beyond their duty, we would consider them heroes. We would say, boy, you know, these people are risking their lives for the benefit of others. Um, and in some circumstances, you know, that's a great thing. And as I said, we celebrate those people as heroes. I do think that in a situation where there's a scarcity of resources, and one of the resources that may be scarce is healthcare workers. I think that to for healthcare workers to 
um, essentially say, well, I'm going to forget about the PPE and I'm just going to do a heroic act and treat patients without any uh, protective equipment. I would say in this day and age, that's not um, heroic, but that's irresponsible because that's um, putting oneself at risk when just being a physician may be uh, actually being a scarce resource in, in the future. Um, so, so I think that it is, it's really all about the degree of risk. Um, but I do think that we, uh, I do think that we owe it to um, society and we owe it to the patients um, who we can care for uh, to do so as much as possible with appropriate uh, PPE. So Dr. Angelis, this is Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I just have a couple questions for you. My first is, could, could you have ever imagined uh, as a medical ethicist being in the current situation that we are currently in? It seems uh, quite preposterous that even a few months ago we could have imagined the situation. And my second question to you is, for the surgeons out there that are um, dealing with, um, you know, COVID cases, especially in the Northeast, what advice do you give them on deciding whether a case um, is emergent and whether or not they should try non-operative managements and as far as the ethics of that goes? Um, yeah, so so I think that um, there's no question that um, uh, I certainly would not have predicted um, this scenarios that we are currently experiencing. And, um, and I think that, uh, for someone such as myself, who's interested in ethics, um, it's a very interesting thing because so many of the things that, uh, we talk about in ethics as theoretical issues that don't generally impact individual patient care are suddenly actually impacting patient care. And so, you know, when we talk about how to make um, difficult decisions in triage situations, you know, that's often a theoretical discussion um, in, you know, Western medical schools and, and in Western medical centers. Um, but in fact, uh, this is something that, you know, we are having to do. And, and I do think that this, uh, you know, current public health crisis is putting a spotlight on some of these ethical issues that maybe we're always there, but we're not necessarily um, in the mainstream of people thinking about them. And, and I mean things like um, the disparities um, in the healthcare that we provide to our citizens. And so, you know, it is not a surprise to people who practice in inner city populations uh, that uh, black Americans are suffering much higher um, death rates than uh, whites. And, you know, that that's not a surprise to people who, for example, you know, provide trauma care. Um, but this is something that I think emphasizes the disparities. And it's something that we should utilize this, um, this spotlight as a, a time to refocus on what we can do to minimize or mitigate those disparities in the future. Now, when you ask, you know, what should someone, you know, what should 
doctors and surgeons in particular do as they think about, um, you know, triaging care. Um, I, I would say a couple recommendations uh, that I would make. Number one, um, if you're in a situation where you actually have to ration a resource such as ICU beds or ventilators, um, I think it's important to realize that those are, in fact, tragic choices. There is not a good choice that suddenly solves the problem and everyone feels good about it. Um, when there's a tragic choice, it means we are going to have to do things that are not comfortable. And I think it's um, a couple of things we can do to help. Um, number one, it's best that those decisions be taken out of the, the um, patient care teams at the bedside. So it's better to have triage teams that are removed from individual patient care so that the people actually caring for the patient can advocate on the part of the patient as much as possible. But if there is a triage situation, that it is you know, a separate team that's actually making those decisions. I think that's important. I think the other thing that we have to acknowledge is that Situations like this cause distress. They cause distress in the public, and they also cause incredible moral distress on the part of physicians and other caregivers. And I think that we have to acknowledge that, and we also have to uh, make plans to deal with the fallout of this moral distress. And we know from SARS outbreaks in places like Singapore, um, you know, early in the 2000s, um, that there were significant uh, rates of anxiety and depression among healthcare providers um, who lived through that episode. And I would suggest that we're going to see similar uh, rates of uh, those problems in the U.S., and um, we should be prepared to support each other and get people the help that they need, again, to try to um, help us, you know, heal from this once it's, uh, once it's further, uh, further in the distance. And along those lines, I definitely myself, and I'm not even clinical right now, feeling the anxiety and distress that is coming with hearing about all the experiences of my colleagues. And, you know, there's various like Facebook groups discussing everything that's going on um, in the physician and healthcare worker communities. Um, but I, I feel like there's a um, distinct separation in those sentiments um, from what the rest of society is feeling because many people aren't actually out there or in the hospitals seeing what's going on. And um, it's kind of the same frustration that I'm not to get political or anything or whatever, but, you know, with the vaccination debate about people who are anti-vaxxers, it's, it's difficult to really until they've experienced something personally, they've experienced someone who's died um, from COVID or whatever, it's hard to get the asymptomatic carriers to understand the implications of social distancing, how it can help support our system. Um, so from that standpoint, I, I think about, you know, what is the moral obligation of the citizen to social distance? And, and you know, it's the same question with vac vaccinations. Like, why should you care about everyone else in society if anyone else is susceptible because you're not, um, you know, practicing social distancing? So what what's kind of your thought process and how do you address that with people who maybe don't fully understand the scope of this issue? 
Yeah, those are really, um, you know, great, great things to consider. I, I think that um, we, I think, you know, the, the idea of supporting each other, I think is a good one. And I think the idea that, you know, there are um, Facebook groups, there are lots of efforts to utilize technology so that um, social distancing doesn't become social isolation. And I think that those are very, very important. And I think in, you know, whatever community we are in, whatever community of caregivers, uh, we should try to use the technology that we have to minimize the chances that people feel isolated. Um, I think that we do have a responsibility uh, as physicians to try to uh, help educate the rest of the population about what are the things that we are seeing and what are the things that we are feeling. And um, I, I would also say that, you know, this may be um, an appropriate uh, catalyst for us also, and by us, I mean physicians and other healthcare providers, um, I think it may be an opportunity for us to think about how to um, become perhaps more engaged in the political process, to think about um, what are the things that could be done in the future to prevent circumstances such as this happening um, again. Because I, I do think that uh, there is a, uh, at least for me, there is a sense that the bubble's been burst, that, you know, I, nobody, I would have never assumed that anything like this could happen uh, in America, that we would be, you know, short of all the things that we need, um, and that we would be so ill-prepared, uh, and yet, you know, we find that we are. So I think that, um, you know, I really do think that we increasingly have responsibilities as citizens to uh, let the rest of society know the the challenges that um, healthcare providers are having to face as a result of some of the decisions that have been made. Um, and, you know, I, I, it seems to me that that's one of the beneficial approaches to a sense of helplessness is to think about, well, you know, what are the things that we could do in the future that might allow us to, um, you know, prevent the exact same. Um, I wanted to switch gears and kind of pick your brain since you are an ethics hospital ethics expert. Um, I wanted to talk about um, what the situation you are facing in your hospital in terms of uh, patients not being able to be with their families during these critical, you know, when they're critically ill or perhaps even dying. And that's a very, um, very real uh, situation that's happening. Um, and people don't really know how to cope with it or how they can prepare um, physicians in talking and breaking bad news over phone um, to their loved ones. And how should um, hospital ethics be involved in these kind of scenarios? Sure. Yeah, those are really great questions. And um, you know, I have to tell you, uh, at the University of Chicago for the last you know, I don't know, three, four weeks now, we've been having um, twice weekly uh, ethics discussions in the Department of Surgery. And, you know, they're, they're Zoom meetings. And so lots of people who are uh, sheltering at home or who are, you know, in the hospital waiting for things to happen, uh, participate. 
And this very question came up uh, on the discussion yesterday. Um, and, you know, the scenario of having to call uh, a family that you may have never met before in an emergency and tell them, you know, what's happened is um, something that in many ways goes against all of the things that we've been taught about effective communication. You know, if you, if you think about um, all the checklists, what should you do to effectively communicate? Well, you should, you know, sit down and take your time and make eye contact and, you know, hold someone's hand and, you know, allow them to grieve if necessary. Um, these are things that are really challenging for us to do uh, when we're not able to be there in person. And uh, it's very hard to express to families the, you know, how difficult this is not only for us, but also we appreciate how hard it is for them. So I don't really have a great suggestion, but I can share with you some of the thoughts that, um, you know, my colleagues in the department thought were valuable. Um, and those were to use whatever technology we have. So if that's, you know, if you have the ability to get someone um, on a video conference type situation, whether that be on your phone or on a computer, that's going to be helpful. Allow them to see how upsetting this is for us as caregivers and not try to um, shelter them from how bad we may feel about this. I think that sharing that distress um, is important. And I do think that um, we are going to need to think about this as not um, just an isolated event, but it may be necessary to think about how to connect that family to support services at the hospital, um, including social work, um, chaplaincy, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I think that insofar as there, if there's a, you know, if there's a physician who, for example, does have a relationship with this patient um, who has died, for example, um, if it's possible for that physician to then, you know, after this terrible news has occurred, to reach out to the family and offer um, support. I think that those are things that we can try to do. Um, you know, it, it is, I think that when we're dealing with the difficult human emotions associated with grieving, I think we need to share with our patients that we are also human and that this is also very difficult for us and that, um, you know, we don't really have a whole lot of experience with how to do this in a very caring way despite the fact that we really want to do it that way. Well, those are some great thoughts. I'd never even had considered the idea of connecting uh, families with the providers um, afterwards. I think that could really offer some closure to some of these families. Um, so Dr. Angelus, as we close out, uh, do you have any uh, recommendations for resources or have there been any particular articles that you recommend um, that have been written about this situation to help uh, guide us as we, um, you know, survive through this? Um, well, I think the, um, I think the American College of Surgeons um, has a, a lot of very good resources, and I would 
you know, I would recommend that you check on their, their website. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that we are dealing with, and I think increasingly hospitals are going to be dealing with across the country is how do you prioritize the cases that you're going to do as the ORs are shutting down and then as they are reopening? I think we're going to be dealing with this. Um, and I think one of the challenges is how to, um, you know, it's, it's almost a triage decision about how to use the scarce resource of OR time. And so um, I think there have been a number of approaches to this. Um, and uh, uh, I think if, uh, if I could suggest one resource, you know, with colleagues um, at the University of Chicago, um, we've tried to develop a bit of a scoring system um, and it is on uh, dealing with what we are not calling elective surgery, but what we are calling medically necessary time-sensitive procedures. So those medically necessary time-sensitive procedures are the ones that we feel should be prioritized. Um, and we need to think about things like how long patients are going to be in the hospital and how many, you know, what's the level of resource utilization, how long are the cases, that sort of thing. Um, and if you look um, on the American College of Surgeons website, there is a link to uh, that tool, um, which uh, was just uh, published online at um, Journal of the American College of Surgeons. And I, I think that that may be a good resource for many people. Great. Well, Dr. Angelos, thank you again for your help um, and your thoughts on this. It has been uh, very helpful. A pleasure to speak with you all. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day.